You're listening to Playback, a Variety iHeart Media podcast. I'm your host, Variety Awards editor Chris Tapley. I just want to listen to this beat for a second. Thanks to Stuart Park for the new jams. New Playback, new jams. Yes, we're super excited to be a part of the iHeart Media family. So, welcome to all new listeners. And this is Playback, a film focused weekly podcast. We talk to movie stars. We talk to directors, basically exclusive conversations with the talents behind many of today's hottest movies. That's what we do here. And the 90th Annual Academy Awards are right around the corner on Sunday. So first order of business. We've got a lot of good movies, a lot of good performances, uh, but a weird year overall, I thought. Uh, it never quite found itself. So kind of going into the Oscars here, we have a lot of question marks and a number of key races. So it should be a pretty exciting night. Uh, we've talked to a number of this year's nominees here on the show over the last 12 months. So today we thought we'd pull together a few of those conversations and anecdotes, make for a little trip through 2017. We've got chats with actors like Gary Oldman and Saoirse Ronan, and filmmakers like Christopher Nolan and Dee Reese, just to name a few. So let's dive in. The year started, as it always does, at the Sundance Film Festival. It was there that Universal Pictures decided to drop Jordan Peele's Get Out as a surprise screening. It was a very bold move, but it immediately set this genre film up as more than a genre film. I mean, it became a critically acclaimed movie that uh, clearly could be a prestige picture. And here we are a year later, the proof's in the pudding. The movie's competing for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, and Best Original Screenplay. Uh, it's quite the whirlwind, and I spoke to Jordan just ahead of her release way back on February 23rd, just over a year ago. One of the things we talked about was the genre-bending quality of the film. It's a horror film, but it's also a social satire with comedy elements, and it was classified as a comedy at the Golden Globes, which caused quite a stir. But uh, way before all that happened, Jordan and I talked about that nebulous quality of the film, so here's Jordan on that. It felt like the the comedy education that I got I've gotten in the last you know decade or so worked perfectly in this film. Um, you know I feel that both horror and, and laughter are uh, ways we we face our demons, way, ways that we deal with our fears of death in, in a way. Um, it's about tension, 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 and then release with a certain pinpoint precision and um you know in the, in in a way the tension 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 and release is kind of a a, a metaphor for life and death mm-hmm. in, in a way mm-hmm. you know we spend our whole lives fearing the the ultimate absurdity which is that th- this is <laughs> this is temporary you, you won't be here one day that's yeah. right that's right that's true. Uh, I went to the you had the the kind of premiere in in L.A. the L.A. Live screening you had last week, and you said beforehand that for you uh, growing up, race was like a nightmare. Was how you put it, and you wanted to put this nightmare on the screen. What it got me thinking was, <clears throat> what was the chicken and the egg like? Did you want to make a movie with those themes in mind, and then you kind of gravitated into a horror film, or did you want to make a horror film? And these are the themes that came up that you wanted to explore within that. I wanted to make a horror film. Yeah, I just you know I've 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 had the this dream of being a director since I was since I was younger, being specifically a horror director. And um, you know, part of the process of figuring out what I, I I could bring to the genre that would be of any worth or anything I would be proud of, um, you know, I, I realized I'd, I've sort of done enough thinking about race enough work in the comedy space about you know walking that line how to deal with race in art that i was kind of uniquely I- equipped to deal with it um you know i think you know you know, yeah not only is race a nightmare for me I, you know i think that the greater point is that um you know race in this country is is a, a and in the world is this human demon it it, 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 it is a monster that we is in our dna and so I just felt like race was. I realized it's if anyone was going to make a modern move, a horror movie about race, it should be me. Did you feel yourself like 
were you self-governing at all? Like, oh, that's too far. I need to pull back on that. Or did you just kind of let yourself go as far as you felt like you wanted to go? It's, it's, yeah, it's all self-governing, really. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's you, you ask yourself, it, uh, you know, a lot of questions, but ultimately, um, you know, you sort of realize you, you can't write a movie with the. Um, Taking in too too far into consideration how how the people will react to it, whether or not you can sell this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I really wrote this movie for myself um, to say, look, this is going to be a fun project to write. It is um, if I was to write a movie, my, my favorite movie that doesn't exist yet. What is that movie? And I just followed that um, fun. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's kind of you know, it's how I imagine um, Tarantino works. Yeah, it was one of the great like, you know, you, you can just tell he's not making a movie for anyone else. Yeah, he's making the movie he wishes um, movie someone he wants made to see. for him. Yeah, yeah. Jordan joined an elite group of filmmakers with uh, his nominations as producer, writer, and director of Get Out, by the way. Only Warren Beatty and James L. Brooks have managed that particular hat trick on their debut film. So uh, that's pretty exclusive company. Hats off to Jordan. Nearly a year later, we spoke to the film's breakout star, Daniel Kaluuya. Just after he received his life-changing Oscar nomination and uh, when he was in the midst of promoting Black Panther... He stars as uh, Wakabi in that film, by the way, which has been crushing it at the box office. I love this guy. He's so genuine. Uh, You don't feel like you're getting canned answers. He's very thoughtful and conversational and... I don't know. He's just a good dude. Uh, he's going to be doing this for a long time. And what I was particularly interested in talking about with him was the quiet nature of his character in Get Out. Sort of calls on Daniel to be quite reserved in his performance. Uh, a lot going on behind the eyes, under the surface. And as it turns out, that's exactly the uh, gear he prefers to work in. So here's Daniel. I mean, they're challenged in the sense that, like, I mean, I learned so much on Sicario mm-hmm. and working with the, that group of actors where the the audacity to do nothing mm-hmm. you know the the confidence and 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 seeing them doing it on set and not understanding it but then seeing it on screen and go wow Benicio del Toro is amazing in that film Josh is amazing Emily's amazing and I, I kind of it's it's a and then after I took a year and a half off and I kind of had to rethink how I saw storytelling how I saw acting in a sense that like I, I don't want people to see I'm doing it mm-hmm. I, I could kind of so it's just kind of like if you're playing a real dude he's a real dude you know what I mean and it's like and he's going through this and it's about like people may not it may not be the showy role and you have to be okay with people not noticing that you're doing what you're doing but did they notice the story did mm-hmm. they, are they feeling the beats of the story That that's the priority for me mm-hmm. um, so it was me engaging with kind of like just kind of death of like the acting ego in me like to kind of go let me just do what I feel feels right and uh, and and feels real, and and with the internal is kind of like I find that I just find the dynamics really interesting. There's stuff that I think I probably do in life. I think loads of people do that in life. Mm-hmm. I find that interesting. I watch, so I find it interesting when someone says a kind of like a, especially in the professional environment, especially in this industry, people say a lot of slick stuff. Mm-hmm. Can I swear? Absolutely. See a lot of slick shit. It's, it's encouraged. Okay, exactly. let's see we say a lot of slick shit. <laughs> and then like around that's kind of like, but no one can say it directly because I'm from a quite direct home. Mm-hmm. So it's, I'm having to learn that and I can see people react to it, but they can't really react to it. So there's, there's what's being said and on paper, what's being said is nothing. Like it mm-hmm. doesn't mean anything, but underneath both parties know that there's something happening mm-hmm. and their faces are giving hints to something that's happening. So I just kind of was like, oh, that, I find that really, I find that more interesting to see in cinema. So it's kind of like, let's try and do that. Like in, I, but then I think I've always, my instinct has always been like, I don't want to feel like I'm showing off mm-hmm. what I can do. I, I don't, I don't want that. Like even like when I was doing plays and there was like a sequence where I had to like show rage, I'd be like, even in Black Mirror, like when I was doing that monologue, I'd be like, is it too much? Mm-hmm. You know I mean, I don't want it. I don't want people to go, oh, it's, because I probably find that quite overwhelming, me as, and that's just my personal taste. Mm-hmm. And so with Get Out, it was just kind of have this in mind. But also as well, conversation with Jordan and Alison and just going, how do we ground this amazing genre story? Mm-hmm. You know, like, and I, and I just, I just kind of felt, and Jordan was like minded about like, you have to believe this character and believe this relationship and believe that this is real mm-hmm. 
which grounds all the kind of supernatural or otherworldly like genre elements yeah. to to the piece if it's grounded, you know, and you, you're you're way more likely to believe a lot more stuff. There's stuff that's real, but you don't even believe. Yeah, do you know what I mean it's like, and because of the the gravity at the center of it isn't isn't rooted. Sundance was actually a powerhouse uh, for Oscar contenders last year. Uh, in addition to Get Out, there was also Call Me By Your Name and Mudbound, as well as The Big Sick, which was written by and stars Kumail Nanjiani of one of my favorite shows, HBO's Silicon Valley. Uh, Kumail was nominated for original screenplay along with his wife, Emily V. Gordon, and uh, this was about as personal an experience as you can get. I mean, The Big Sick tells the story of Emily's sudden coma when Kumail was courting her and uh, how the experience both strengthened and tested their families. And, uh, you know, when you're pouring your soul out like that and literally telling your story on screen, you have to feel somewhat exposed in a way I guess very few of us can uh, identify with. So I wanted to talk to Kumail about that over the summer when the film finally released in theaters. So here's Kumail. Well, you know, as a stand-up, at some point, I started taking personal stories and personal experiences and talking about them on stage. So I had a little bit of experience being personal mm -hmm. and sort of giving of myself in little ways. This is sort of the deal. I was thinking about this earlier today or last night when I couldn't sleep. You know, there is a little bit of you lose... A lot of people see your vulnerability, right? But a little bit, I think that's sort of the deal with the devil you have to make to do what I get to do. Like, what you get is you get to live your dreams and tell your stories, and it's really exciting. But what the price of that a little bit is that you are giving a piece of yourself for everyone to analyze and judge. Um, but I knew, like, a few years after these the events of the movie had happened... I knew that I wanted to, like, do something with it, like either do a show about it or something, because it felt like this very specific emotional thing that had happened, and I knew that nobody else had this story, mm -hmm. and that um, only Emily and I were the ones who would be able to tell this story, like, kind of, if we didn't tell the story, the story would just not get told, nobody else has this. So, um, and, and, and I really think... For me, writing, and I think the best writing, is sort of you're trying to deal with your concerns and tackle stuff that's complicated and messy for you. And part of it's a little bit of like self-therapy working on something like this. So I knew that this was a story I wanted to tell. Emily took a little bit more convincing. Uh, I knew this was a story I wanted to tell because thinking about it would like paralyze me. And I knew that I had a lot of like stuff floating around inside this black box that I hadn't opened and I knew that in in order to be able to move on from this kind of crazy event I'd have to write about it and really get into it and 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 sort of figure out how I felt about it you know and it's very easy to be like well that was a tough time but when you actually open the box and think about like what did I do this day and then this happened and this happened this is how that made me feel like going through all the events uh, piece by piece is it's very difficult but I think it's also uh, allowed us to get a handle on this big big part of our life did you get swept up in any kind of emotion like in the moment in a scene that would obviously remind you of this very emotional moment in your life there are some scenes that I cried when I wrote them I cried when I rewrote them I cried when I rehearsed them and and then shooting them was the same thing I was surprised at how much of it actually felt like going through the real thing part of it is I mean more the hospital stuff because when you're in a hospital this wasn't a set we shot in a real hospital mm. the sense memory of being in a hospital and I hadn't that it had been about nine years since that stuff happened just the lighting the smell of tape the smell of medicine the sterility the, the sounds the sounds the yeah, yeah the weird beeps you yeah. hear all that stuff the uh, sounds of wheels mm. on um, linoleum or whatever it is all that stuff took me back immediately, me and Emily, both of us, like, immediately. So it was actually more of a struggle 
to not uh, go back into that really sad space. Uh, it was actually more of a st- struggle to not do that than it was to like get into it. You know, like like waiting in the waiting room or all that stuff. I hadn't been in a hospital really since all that stuff happened to us and going back into it and shooting it there. Uh, it was very, very, it was very intense and it was very intense for Emily. It was about 10 years ago, right? Yeah, it was 2007. Yeah. Like I mentioned, uh, Mudbound was a big Sundance player as well this year. It was acquired by Netflix for an astounding $12.5 million. I don't know if it's astounding. It was worth it, certainly. Um, it's an amazing film. And the movie's co-writer and director, D. Reese, uh, is one of the most headstrong and driven directors I've ever uh, interviewed. Uh, she's already a masterful artist, just three films in, and her cinematographer, Rachel Morrison, actually made history this year with her uh, Oscar nomination for Best Cinematography. She's the first woman to do so, which is obviously a long time coming. We like to dig in on the craft of filmmaking on this show, and something Dee and I talked about was settling on the look of uh, this post-World War II drama, and plenty of talk about her work with Rachel, so here's Dee talking about that. Yeah, so we did look at other films. So, like, for me, like, the visual art world has always been my inspiration in, like, you know, creating kind of images for the screen. And so, for me, inspirations were, there's an artist named Whitfield Lavelle, who does a lot of tone-on-tone paintings, a temporary artist. There's a sculptor I love named Mary Frank, who does a lot of things that unite bodies and landscapes. And then Rachel had, like, Dorothea Lange and all these old WPA photos. So we really kind of worked from there and wanted the film to feel very kind of candid, very kind of, like, like, honest in a way and another um, thing I love I love um, Les Blank who does these documentaries he done this like this documentary called The Truth According to, to Lightning Hopkins so you know we looked at that and like wanted the film to have a very kind of m- moving at the speed of life feel mm-hmm. so it doesn't feel presentational it doesn't feel stagey which can be you know the catch with a lot of uh, period pieces but we wanted to move at the speed of life and feel honest you know and yet, it's I wouldn't call it like a verite thing. I think it's a it's aesthetically beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, working. Uh, I don't know what your budget was, but like, were there limitations? That, that absolutely, yeah. We yeah. shot this film in twenty nine days for ten million dollars. So this is an indie film that no one realizes is an indie film. Yeah, and you know, and that was because Rachel was able to work so fast and use a lot of lighting. And you know, a big you know problem was basically we shot an actual sharecropper's cabin. So like a lot of the challenge was balancing like the inside versus the outside. And mm-hmm. so she actually had to cut holes in the ceiling, ceilings of these cabins to be able to put lights like in the roof of these things, mm-hmm. so that you know the, the 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 value difference wasn't so great between the exteriors and interiors. And just really you know making these characters feel like they're of the world and I really love to let actors move through the space and I don't like blocking that kind of inhibits kind of their their, their flowing and that's all dependent on having a DP this one to be flexible with lighting and being able to like work with you so that the actors have maximum freedom that the actors are able to kind of do their best work moving out of Sundance and into the release calendar James Mangold's Logan hit theaters on March 3rd which was less than a week after last year's Oscars were over, and the craziness of that envelope snafu, which I think James and I even talked about, maybe, or that might have been off the air. Can't remember. But in any case, uh, I spoke to James just before this uh, film released, and I very much doubt at the time he expected that, uh, you know, a year later he'd be sitting here sharing the first ever screenplay nomination for a superhero movie with his co-writers, but here we are. Uh, and I, I think it's well-deserved. This film stands out from the fray of superhero movies, I feel. I'm a big fan of westerns, uh, as is James, and this movie has that genre in its DNA, which I thought was a brilliant flourish. So naturally, we talked about that. So here's James talking about the western qualities of Logan. It's central to the entire story of this character as mm-hmm. well. Um, I mean, for those who aren't X-Men fans... Um, one thing has been essentially true about Logan through his comic book history and movie history, which is that he's carrying a ton of shame on mm-hmm. his back about dark deeds he committed when he was younger and called Weapon X in his incarnation as a kind of... Um, when drug, he was a gunslinger. He wa- well, he was a drug-pumped so drug uh, killer. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, but in the metaphor of the Western, yeah. he, was a, he was a gunslinger. And... Um, and um, and a lot of people were hurt, and they weren't all um, in it. They weren't all guilty mm-hmm. in some way. It wasn't always the justified death, if you will. And the, um, I think that that's something that's been played with throughout, um, as I said, comic book 
uh, history with this character and in the movies. But the the idea for me of coming of this character coming to terms um, with his life um, in a final film seemed to me necessary to find some way to go deeper into his own odd um, relationship with violence. When did this kind of conceit, uh, because it is, it does have the, the DNA of a Western, uh, when did that, did you go into it with that conceit in mind, or did it develop as you developed the project? Like, I'm, some I'm curious come, about that. Some, some of that comes along with just me, meaning, mm-hmm. you know, my second film, Copland, which by all outward appearances is a kind of uh, Sidney Lumet-esque, uh, New Jersey kind of Peyton Place cop movie Mm -hmm. uh, was very much structured, actually built on 310 Yuma. Mm -hmm. The idea of this kind of weakened male in the center of this town of gunslingers who is called upon to kind of find the reserves to stand up to this um, gunslinging bunch of corruption around him. Mm -hmm. Um, The that's all very much um, was hugely Western influenced and in fact that movie ends in a giant gunfight. Yeah. Um, the um, but a gunfight not like you'd see in uh, Heat, but mm. one more like one you'd see in High Noon. Yeah. And um, uh, the westerns had a powerful effect on me. Um, I I couldn't completely explain why, but I in I'm kind of a a, a classicist. I mean, I'm not. I'm I I, I am from the same generation. Um, that a, a host of really talented kind of postmodern directors have come from. Probably the leader of all of them would be Quentin. And I'm a huge fan of his work, but I couldn't do anything like that. Like, mm-hmm. it's not the whole... Uh, uh, there's something... I'm always looking for something very earnest. I miss... I miss, amid all the really wonderful films made along the lines I was just describing, I miss movies that mean it. Mm-hmm. that have something to say that uh have a kind of gravity to them and are unashamed I, it's in this kind of most sardonic of ages it's almost gotten um uncool to actually represent a true feeling mm-hmm. um that without quotes around it or or a snicker and that that's something the western for me embodies um and has always offered kind of uh guidance on um yeah if for listeners who are hearing me describe you know logan's backstory it's kind of very logical if you think about movies like shane or unforgiven or uh, pale rider or uh, the Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. There's a lot of movies that in which the kind of uh, bones, the lineage, um, really lend themselves to considering um, to considering how you might be able to use some of those structures in a modern superhero movie. As we moved through the spring, the industry geared up for uh, the Cannes Film Festival in May. Cannes has kind of fallen off in terms of launching Oscar players lately, but one of the year's best, I thought, stuck out at last year's edition, Sean Baker's The Florida Project. Legendary actor Willem Dafoe uh, has been widely recognized for his work on the film all season, and he landed his third supporting actor nomination this year after Platoon and uh, Shadow of the Vampire. Uh, what's interesting here is that he's sort of the central node in this film. He's like the recognizable star surrounded by all these non-actors and green performers, and it just makes for an interesting quality and even a bit of a family atmosphere on the set. So here's Willem talking about that. It is true that it's a situation where um, the, the company is made up of people that have been cast from the street, mm-hmm. people have been casted from Instagram, uh, <laughs> there's some professional actors, there's some new professional actors, there's some kids, and then, uh, you know, there's also me, and I've been around for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's always the same uh, on some level that even even in an industry movie, even in a studio film, sometimes you're working with people from very different backgrounds and very different trainings. Mm-hmm. I'm always struck that it's in, in, in the profession of acting, particularly for Americans, uh, there isn't a uniformity of training or a y- uniform methodology. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing at all. Right. In fact, I think mixing it up helps because um, then with each project you really have to, to 
to find what your process is. Mm -hmm. And you also have to find out how to fit in with everybody and make the world. So it doesn't become about you. It becomes about the thing that you're making. And that frees you. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that uh, that environment with these other actors, this atmosphere. I mean, was it uh, trying? Was it electric? Was it? Did it take you back to your roots at all? Like how a little it, bit. Yeah. You know, it was like a family, you know, <laughs> and all film sets are like that a little bit. But these were people that this wasn't same old, same old. There mm-hmm. wasn't a cynical one in the lot because it was a new, exciting experience for them. And then also it was conditioned by the fact that we were shooting in a real place. Mm-hmm. So as extras, uh, you're having people that are really living this life, this life that uh, the story that we're telling is about. Mm-hmm. So they helped root the story as well in a reality. Um, and for me, playing the character, it was kind of wild because we're working in a fun- functioning motel. Mm-hmm. It's still functioning. I mean, sometimes we had to stop a scene because someone was checking into the motel. Interesting. So they didn't just take the whole building over. (laughs) We took the whole building over. I mean, you know, for certain But in terms of you didn't, like, shut it down, like people are, yeah. No, it was still functioning. It was still functioning. And it would be literally like, oh, we got to shoot that scene. So the real manager would have to leave (laughs) the room. I'd slide in there and we'd play the scene. Uh, in the summer blockbuster sphere, the first slam dunk across the board Oscar contender to actually open theatrically outside of the festival circuit was Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk in July. Uh, you know, not to play favorites, but I will. This is my favorite of the uh, best picture contenders. I think it's Nolan's best film, a culmination of his tradecraft, if you will. Uh, the film received eight Oscar nominations, including Best Picture and Best Director, and that director nomination was somehow Nolan's first in the category, if you can believe that. This was a very technical conversation, which I wanted. I'm fascinated by Nolan's craft, naturally. And uh, IMAX was a significant topic here, as we discuss his and cinematographer Hoyta Van Hoytema's efforts in pushing the medium as far as it can go. A lot of your choices about... Um who to work with are very instinctive. They're about getting in the room with somebody and seeing if there's a creative spark between you. Um, you know, I'd seen the, the work he'd done on other films, uh, let the right one in in particular, made quite an impression on me. Um, but really it was about a meeting the minds creatively just in, in talking about cinematography and, and his approach to it and what I, what I wanted in, terms of the photography on interstellar because um, it, it's more than that relationship is about more than just lighting or camera work it's about storytelling and you have to find somebody who uh, will really be pulling in the same direction as you in terms of how to tell that story and what the role of the photography will be in it and, and so one of the, the more interesting things i think about what Hoyta did in dunkirk which is deceptively simple is, is he didn't ever want to discuss the look of the film. He didn't ever want to talk about it as any kind of stylization. He had the confidence to let it emerge from the material and what we were actually going to stage and let that define the look, which I think for, for myself as a director, I have a lot of experience with large scale films. Um, you know, I, for me, that wasn't maybe such a leap, but for the, for a cinematographer to sort of say, we're going to put thousands of people on the beach, we're going to get these airplanes, we're going to get these boats, and then we're going to see how that informs the creative process of the photography. Um, so all of our conversations in pre-production, rather than being aesthetic, they were technical. It was, okay, this is the format we're shooting, this is the type of lens we need, this is how we're going to move the camera around. Um and I think that one of the things that I'm happiest about with Hoyt's work on the film is the sincerity and the naturalness of the way in which he, he achieved these remarkable images. Mm-hmm. They're from the heart. I mean, they're just somebody with a brilliant eye watching what's going on in, in front of us and, and finding a way to capture that. So there's no imposed style on, on the photography in the film. Uh, and in the case of IMAX photography, is what Hoyt has done with the IMAX format in, in this film is really unique and, and groundbreaking, in my opinion. Um, 
Yeah, I think it's the best use of the format you've had so far. I mean, certainly I, I saw one of the early screenings at the Universal City Walk. Yeah. And I felt like I was just falling into the screen from the opening frame. Well, know? we had a, had a bit of practice by, then, by yeah. this time. We've been doing it for 10 years, and Hoyter on Interstellar finally broke that barrier that we hadn't been able to of, of how to handhold the camera, mm-hmm. uh, basically by just picking it up and toughing it out. Yeah. But um, he he was able then suddenly to give me access to the IMAX format as a spontaneous format, as an intimate format. And so coming to Dunkirk, where my aspiration for the film was an intimate epic, he is then able to put that lens right where a 35mm or a GoPro would be, you know, and, and really give you that that intimacy with the characters, but on this incredible format that is so... It's transparent in a sense. It's not stylized. It doesn't have its own look. It just lets the screen disappear and immerses the audience in, in the action. Uh, and so I think Hoyter really trusted the format and trusted his eye to just be there, follow the characters through, and, and find the um, the look of the thing that way rather than imposing a, a style on it. And I think I think it's it's remarkable work. That- that answers my next question, which was, you know, I was curious if you guys pulled any references, if you looked at photography or any artwork, but uh, obviously not. But in general, no. was that just for this movie, or is that something that you're typically interested in coming into pre-production? On I think it depends on the, on the project. Um, I've often done films where, in the case of Inception, you know, working with Wally, with different storylines that intersect or interact. You know, there is perhaps a temptation to say, well, we could do, you know, this one, this particular color or this process or put this look to it. Um, I've always sort of come down on the side of naturalism. And that's why I work so well with Wally Pfister. It's why I think I work so well with Hoyte van Hoytema. They're, they're naturalistic uh, photographers. They sort of trust the material in front of them in a way. And so you trust that the reality or the physical differences of the different timelines will start to naturally achieve some kind of a look. And I've always tried to shoot on the highest quality format, the most transparent medium possible, so that you are really just giving the audience access to the look and feel of the world that that you want them to to respond to, the, the tactile quality of it. You want people to watch Dunkirk in such a way that they, they know what everything would smell like. Mm-hmm. You know, that that kind of tactility, that, that's very important. You know, the Venice Film Festival has evolved into a significant Oscar season launch pad. It's kicked off the journeys of films like Gravity, Birdman, Spotlight, and La La Land in recent years. This year's opener was Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water, a gorgeous fairy tale as only Guillermo could conjure. I love talking to Guillermo. I think everyone does. Uh, his passion is infectious, and he really deserves all the love he's getting this year. Shape of Water was an idea that took root for Guillermo when he was a child, watching Creature from the Black Lagoon. And uh, it was an idea that evolved to take on a sort of low-key socio-political bent. And that's something we discussed. So here's Guillermo. It's great because it's, 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 it's full circle in many ways for many reasons. You know, it started when I was six and I saw Julie Adams swimming and creatures from the Black Lagoon and the creatures swimming underneath contemplating her, you know. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what a beautiful image. Even at age six, I was enraptured by it. And I was enraptured by the love that it had, the romance it had. But, of course, they they didn't end up together. Mm-hmm. You know, and I and it was <laughs> uh, something I kept thinking about. I I thought, well, you know, this was a very unfair movie. I thought because mm-hmm. they break into the home of the guy uh, and they kill him. Basically, <laughs> this is a very tragic movie for me. I've always uh, seen monsters as very spiritual figures for me, very metaphorical. You know, sort of embodied concepts for me, and 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 I stayed with that. And then in two thousand eleven. You know, the project started as such, and it took uh, five or six years to get it made and properly rendered. And, and writing writing it, the the scene that reignited it is to go through the janitors, mm-hmm. to go through the invisible people, the people without voice, mm-hmm. uh, because it's a movie about the other. Mm-hmm. It's a movie about embracing the otherness, finding the divine, the lovable, the beautiful, and the other, as opposed to the fear and the rage and all these things that we are living today. And mm-hmm. and that's why I subtitled the movie. It said, um, 
the ship of water, a fairy tale for troubled times, mm-hmm. because I felt it was like that for me. It was to talk about love without being corny, to talk about emotions, which is now much harder. I mean, I think we're in a very difficult age for emotions. Mm-hmm. You know, we 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 can talk cynically, we can talk uh, with iron, uh, irony, you know, and it really sounds smart. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about emotions, normally you sound this ingenious right and I thought it, it, let's take the risk let's embrace a movie that is in love with love in love with cinema you know make it a beautifully sort of classic Douglas Sirk uh, Technicolor all the beauty that we can put in the screen and, and go at it with emotion you know? what do you think that is that uh, is to your point about cynicism today I mean when you say that when you say that like you know, people speak with irony and you sound smart. It seems like something that would be driven by the Internet age in a, in a way. But what, what do you think? It's driven by fear and isolation, really. I mean, the, look, uh, the, the, the fact is uh, ideologies uh, are, you know, there's a difference, major difference between ideas and ideologies. Yeah. And when an ideology comes to play uh, is what separates you from others. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, an ideology is the only thing that allows a person to grab a baton and beat another human being. Mm-hmm. Because you are reduced to a thing, mm-hmm. uh, you are reduced to your race, you're an immigrant, or you're reduced to your gender, mm-hmm. and 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 it allows the person to dehumanize you, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, the key to that, the solution to that, is love. Mm-hmm. Because and I know this sounds silly, but it is 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 the one f- cosmic force the Beatles, Buddha, and uh, Jesus agreed upon, <laughs> and and it's because love is understanding. Mm-hmm. Is empathy, mm-hmm. you know, and when you empathize, when you walk in another person's shoes for a couple of minutes, you understand the entirety of their persona, not or not just the identity that an ideology gave them. So we are like the the discourse socially is so exacerbated right now; it's so rife with anger and resentment, and 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 I think that partially. Yes, you can talk about social media, but also politically, and we've come to the point, and it's one of the oldest techniques, there are two possible explanations why your situation is bad socially. A, 1% of the people own about 90% of the wealth, or B, quote-unquote, them, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call them, immigration, race, and the first one makes you take an active role. The second one absolves you. Mm-hmm. The second one is telling you, no, 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 you're right, you're fine. It's them that are the problem. And, and very easily you pour the hatred into them. Mm-hmm. But that's not the real problem. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is used politically more and more and more to deflect, distract, you know. So there are many factors. And the movie is at the same time very humane and very political. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, look, the moment the, when you take a stance in any narrative, it's a political stance. If you tell the story of Waterloo from Napoleon's point of view, is one movie. If you tell it from the person ironing his trousers, that's another one. And that's what we did on Shape of Water. We, we told you a story, not through the agents and the scientists, but through the cleaning, uh, through the janitors in the place, you know, mm-hmm. the cleaning women that had to wipe the toilets, empty the trash bins. And from that moment, and taking the point of view of not the hero, but the monster, you already are taking a political stance. Guillermo was nominated for Best Picture as a producer, as well as Best Director and Best Original Screenplay, by the way. Another Venice debut was Martin McDonough's Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, which has become quite uh, quite the lightning rod this season. But I'll get into that in a minute. Uh, let's start with one of the film's stars and one of my favorite actors, Sam Rockwell. Sam plays a racist Missouri cop in the film, opposite uh, Francis McDormand and Woody Harrelson, who were also nominated. One of the things that Sam and I talked about was his research for the part and going down to Missouri and taking all that in. So here's Sam talking about that. I met a couple of cops. I met one, um, Deemer in L.A., who Woody was with, I think Casey uh, did a ride along with him. And then I met a couple of Missouri cops and t- had them tape my lines my my dialect coach Liz Himmelstein found these cops in southern Missouri. We had we had to have some conversations. Like I, I emailed with Francis and and Martin. Like where are we gonna? Where is this imaginary Missouri town gonna be? Is it gonna be 
Southern or Northern because there's a big difference in the way they talk. And so we sort of agreed that it would generally would be Southern Missouri. And then I then I knew what I had to find. And so it was cool to go down there to Southern Missouri. I did a ride along mm-hmm. um, this beautiful guy. And he he uh, introduced me to all these all these guys. And, um, you know, and so that was really cool. That was really uh, influenced a lot about the characters. Do you, you know. feel a sort of pressure though? Whenever I mean, this is this is a very complex character, and obviously yeah. it's take, it takes place in a fictional Missouri town, in the unrest out of Ferguson. That is obviously yeah. just playing on the fringes of this film. Absolutely, uh, yeah. You know, do, does that provide a sense of pressure to make sure that you're not painting a caricature? Absolutely, like that? and that's why I went down there. You know, I mean, Martin wrote this before Ferguson, but um, I did I did feel kind of obliged to find out the real story a little bit and i asked those guys a lot of questions you mm-hmm. know and uh you know the bottom line is i didn't see racism down there i mean i didn't i i saw a lot of stuff but i didn't um but i it, obviously it exists and and so you know my job i didn't need to go to missouri to play this part i mean it mm-hmm. just helped me personally i wanted i had the time and i wanted to do it but you know um the, the Dixon's journey is important, I think, to that topic. I, you know, and I, I think it does say something. I'm not sure what quite what it says, but that's what's so enigmatic about the script. I think it doesn't, it doesn't even seem like it's actively trying to say something to you. Like it's trying to yeah. dictate something. It, it just the way that the themes and the characters and all the interplay comes together. It just leaves you with this sense. Yeah, and I, I don't even know how you put a word to it, but. Yeah, you could you could put a bunch of labels. You could put you know feminism and you know um, racism and anti. You could put a lot of labels these days. Um, anti violence and you know, but it, it it's just really at the end of the day, it's a really entertaining and potent yeah. uh, uh, screenplay. Yeah. you know, and movie. I think. Yeah. Now the film's director Martin McDonough, he was the surprise omission this year in the best director category, but he was nominated for his original screenplay. Three Billboards has attracted a lot of criticism for what some feel to be a blasé or or tone-deaf handling of racism in America. There were a lot of think pieces at the end of the year and after the Golden Globes where the film kind of swept, and that's around the time that uh, Martin and I spoke. But I had not seen anyone really asking him about this, so I did. Uh, I asked McDonough about uh, these criticisms and what he was aiming for with his work on the page. So here's Martin. Well, I think some of it comes from the idea that there's a um, uh, that Sam's character is redeemed at the end of the film. Um, you don't believe he is? I don't think he is. No, I think at the end he he, he he's still the asshole that he was at the start of the film. Um, but I think there is uh, hopefully by the, the end of it he's 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 seen that he has to change almost, you know. Mm. But but the film isn't about simple heroes and villains and he he in no way i think does he ever come become a hero in it the whole the whole part of one of the ideas of the story is like who are the villains and who are the heroes and and is anyone you know is anyone really that heroic um mm-hmm. but um but uh certainly you know uh, i did want to explore the idea of of uh, Francis and a strong woman you know uh, going against the police in the south and I thought uh, I do believe that you know the racial angle is definitely one of the re- weapons she would throw at them mm-hmm. um, so um, but the idea the idea that human beings that there's hope in in a story like this even with characters as as despicable as as, as Sam's is, um, I thought that was an interesting thing to explore. Yeah. Uh, in any early drafts, did you ever uh, have any thought toward using race, like instead of just using race as a backdrop or as a tool for her means, was there any exploration of a black character in more in depth or any depicting any of these kinds of events as opposed to just kind of using them as a backdrop? Um, there, there was, I mean, we, we filmed a few scenes with, with, and um, certainly with uh, Francis's uh, friend in the gift shop had, had a couple of extra scenes that didn't, didn't make it into the finished film. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but, uh, but the story is pretty much, you know, based and focused on, on Francis's character. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so it's her story and, you know, 
I'm sure the next film will be different. Um, just as this was like way different to the sort of male centric films I did in the first two. Right. Um, but because it's Francis's story, um, I guess it's her that I was concentrating on and, and no one else really comes as through as strongly as she does. Yeah. Did you write with her in mind? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, completely written for, uh, for Francis. And I'm not sure who I'd have gone to if she'd have said no, cause, uh, uh, she was just perfect for it. You know, she's, she's, probably the best actress of her generation, I think. But if she's also got that kind of off-screen kind of edginess too, you know, mm. she doesn't really play the Hollywood game. Totally. And uh, and that's kind of what was great to tap into too. Like even that scene, you know, like breeze past the red carpets and not do <laughs> interviews and, and not do the award circuit. It's kind of, it's almost Mildred-like, you know. <laughs> she just doesn't give a, a damn about what you're supposed to do. And right. uh, I think that's that's what's brilliant about her. Much to mine and my colleagues' chagrin. <laughs> yeah, keep trying. Would love to have you on the show, Francis. <laughs> Never going to happen. <laughs> Never going to happen. Moving out of Venice and into another uh, late summer event, the Telluride Film Festival, which comes every Labor Day weekend up in the mountains of Colorado, has become the preeminent showcase for would-be Oscar contenders Eight of the last nine Best Picture winners have screened there, uh, and it's a very small, exclusive lineup, like 30 or 40 films, so that's actually saying something. Many of those were world premieres, in fact. This year's Best Picture Telluride debuts were Darkest Hour and Lady Bird. For Lady Bird, I talked to writer-director Greta Gerwig and Saoirse Ronan together, and their energy together is just wonderful, uh, which you'll see in this clip and certainly in the full interview. One focus of the chat was uh, Saoirse's excitement over playing a female character of complexity written by a woman. And uh, it was just different from, from many of the roles she reads on a daily basis. So here's Saoirse and Greta talking about that and some other stuff. It's a female character who's complex. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's a young, especially for to read a young girl who's... In real life, when you're a chick and you're like 17 years old, 17, 18, 19, 20, everything is changing, just like it is for a boy. Like, you're at that stage in your life where you don't know who you are, you don't know where you're going, you're very driven, but you don't know what you're heading towards. Like, you're really, you spend those few years just figuring all this shit out. And... When I remember when I was 17, 18, I had gotten so used to playing these really great, well-written child roles. And then as soon as I became a teenage girl, they just weren't there. I couldn't mm. find them anywhere. Mm-hmm. And this is the first time, really, it was the first time that I had read a teenage girl that had all the complexities of a real teenager. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. boy or girl who who was who was a great friend, but was also drawn towards, you know, the popular kids because she wanted to be liked, but Mm. had her principles, but sort of veered away from them when she felt a little unsure of herself. And like, it's, it was, I mean, all the characters in it are are so well-rounded and you just don't find that very often um, when a teenage girl is at the helm of it, you know? Yeah, and I saw a lot of myself in it, funnily mm, enough. Right. I mean, I, I graduated high school in 99, so mm-hmm. some of the stuff was, was familiar Similar, to me. Yeah, and, like, yeah. I keep joking, like the Timothy Chalamet character, I'm like, I knew this guy. Yeah. <laughs> I knew this clove-smoking, yeah. waxing poetic, <laughs> coffee shop dwelling. Like, I knew this guy. I might have tried to be that guy, actually. Yeah. Yeah. But well, the, it's we can all be forgiven yeah. for trying to be okay. whoever we tried to be. Yeah. I think even Lady Bird tries to be that guy. Totally. That's what I mean. That's one of the things I like love about Lady Bird is the, what a good student she is in terms of like the next time you see her after she's met Kyle, she's got a copy of the People's History of the United yeah. States because she pays attention. <laughs> like, that's what he likes. I will now go get that book and also like it. And there's something very. It's like a sponge. Driven about that. You know, there's, there's, it's so great. Like the scene where she's just turned 18, she goes into the store and she's like, I'll have a packet of cigarettes and a scratcher and a playgirl. And (laughs) I remember up until recently, because I think I definitely had a sort of delayed response to being like a young adult. And I remember when I moved to London, I had, I had like such anxiety when I would just like go to the supermarket Mm because I was like, okay, this is what normal grown-ups do. And I remember I would walk around in this sort of floaty way and I'd be like, okay, I 
I need the eggs. Where are the eggs? Where are the eggs? Where are the eggs? And I'm like panicking in my head, but I'm looking around and I'm like, okay, I I look normal. And I think you spend so much of like your later teenage years and early 20s pretending to be an adult or like playing the role of an adult. And I think that's something that she does too. Totally. I totally, it's also the first time you're at a supermarket, I think, when you're out of your own home. There's this also, I had this anxiety of like, I had only ever seen my mom shop for a family of you know five and and so I had like completely incorrect proportions about how much food <laughs> one person needed yeah. and it was like I was like no you do not need to buy the economy pack of Cheerios that's you it will take you a year to go through that you can just buy the regular size Cheerios yeah. and move on from there but I feel like I bet I'm, I'm so interested in I don't know. And I've always liked, I've always liked, uh, younger characters trying on adult morality mm-hmm. because I feel like they're almost practicing for it. Mm-hmm. I put this in the script. Noah and I wrote Mistress America. We put this in of like some character saying about another character who's is also 18, like he was unfaithful to me. <laughs> and it was just, it was like this idea of like, who are you doing this for <laughs> exactly? What right. is this? What are these adult rules you're imposing on yourself at this moment? It's like, look at like, me, I'm an adult. Yeah, yeah. But, but I think it's 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 how you learn how to do it. Yeah, I mean, how else you imitate it? Greta's nomination for best director made her just the fifth woman ever recognized in the category. Ninety years. Uh, she was also nominated for original screenplay. While Sersha was nominated for Best Actress, and uh, her on-screen mom, Laurie Metcalf, picked up a nomination for Supporting Actress. Laurie's won Emmys and a Tony, but she's never found herself in the Oscar season until this role, so she's just soaking it up. Uh, She spoke about the unique environment Greta creates on set. So here's Laurie talking about that. It's all about her energy. I think. And the energy on the set was a one of collaboration, of support and feeling protected, of watching her watch the monitor with this big grin on her face and knowing that she was in her element. She wouldn't want to be anywhere else and that she had our back. And that made everybody in the cast and crew feel very protected. Um And uh, there was a lightness about the set and maybe even a maternal quality because um, you felt that she was watching out for everybody. Now, she had to have been going through stressful days um, because I I think that's inevitable as a director, Mm -hmm. um, maybe and also a first solo Mm -hmm. director. Um, Nobody knew if that was the case. Um, she just has an ease. She's just a natural at it. You'd mm-hmm. never know it was her first time. Yeah. Well, as I said just before the show, I first saw this movie at Telluride, where it premiered. Um, and I walked out and I tweeted something like, I love Lady Bird so much I can't stand it. And A24 has used it in their advertising, which, yeah, it's the truth. I mean, and, and what's interesting to me is that it's been such a universally beloved movie this year. I mean, it. All the talk of the critically acclaimed, the Rotten Tomato score, all of that. Yeah. Why do you think that it struck such a universal chord? You know, I saw it for the first time at Telluride also. Yeah. Um, and I was so well. I was right in the middle of a group of with you seeing it for the first time. And I was literally seeing most of the movie for the first time myself mm-hmm. because all my scenes were with yeah, Sersha. And no, yeah, no, sure. I'm in like, I don't know, 25% of it. Mm-hmm. And so I was having a blast seeing what all the, uh, the uh, high school <laughs> scenes were about. Um, and, and when I walked out and were, and I was hearing people saying, I've got to call my mother. <laughs> I want to see this with my daughter. Um, fathers or men saying, I have witnessed that mother-daughter relationship <laughs> and have also felt like I was the outsider, like Tracy's character is, like just, just, just wanting to be, um, non-confrontational mm-hmm. about it and not really understanding it, not understanding how they can flip on a dime, like in the thrift store scene <laughs> where they're looking for a dress together and arguing that the, the classic passive aggressive yeah. banter going back and forth. And then they find the perfect dress. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so, it's a complex relationship as far as the mother daughter scenes go 
that Greta was able to walk such a fine line and find the balance so that one is just not an ogre, you know, Mm -hmm. one is not doing all the button pushing. The mother doesn't exist just to show what the daughter's home life is is like and what she has to put up with, with parents who don't understand her. Mm -hmm. You know, she really, I I guess that's what people are responding to, that it's, it seems very, it's very detailed. Um, it's not our own individual details that are up there on the screen, but it's so close. It feels genuine. Yes. Yeah. As for Darkest Hour, I was privileged to speak to one of my favorite actors of all time, Gary Oldman. Gary's made a career of immersing himself in makeup to play iconic roles in films like Bram Stoker's Dracula and True Romance and The Fifth Element. But after Hannibal, which... You might recall he was the guy that had his face chewed off in that movie. Uh, He took some time off from that kind of thing. I can't imagine sitting in the makeup chair every day for hours on end, but he certainly uh, put in his time with that. And uh, we spoke about that. So here's Gary. Well, I had a big big gap from it. I, uh, the last time I was... Um, in that kind of makeup, I think, was for Hannibal, mm-hmm. the uh, Ridley Scott film. And that was six hours. But then um, I, would only, I would only work a four-hour day in it. Um, and that was a whole thing with contact lenses. And they, had, they rigged up a device that held my eyes open, so I had no eyelids, so I didn't blink. And... Um, and you could only, you, you you could only. It was every fifteen minutes they had to give me eye drops and release the eyelids, to to rest the eye. So it was a sort of very um, a, a, a crazy process. And I and I swore after that that I would never do it again. Um, and that was my. Uh, you know that was my life there done with 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 that kind of makeup um when this came up with darkest hour um it came on the scene it was um it it was a necessity yeah. it was the only way t- to go so i knew going in um and 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 and, and hannibal was uh, seven eight days you know mm-hmm. um so you're looking at, uh, at winston um you, you know you're looking at 50 in that kind of makeup um and then we had test makeups so i think it's 61 times that i had that i had the makeup on um and uh it, yeah it's a lot it's a lot it's a lot to go through um but of course you're then working with Kazuhiro Suji who designed uh, designed the makeup it was it was Lucy and Dave that uh, that painted it and applied it on a daily basis but it was but it was Kazu who came up with the uh, with with the look and when you're working with someone like that and that kind of material i mean it really is like a synthetic skin mm-hmm. it's not um cumbersome restrictive in any way what does it do for you psychologically like working in the space uh putting you you know being disappeared into a role like that essentially like is it helpful for you does it feel like something you have to act act past does it feel ever feel like uh you know just for you personally well the whole experience was very um immersive um going back to the the sort of work the homework on the role was a, a year um and that was a year of all really all things churchill i mean it was just con- it was constantly in my he was constantly in my head then you had um four weeks rehearsal which is sort of unheard of for a film, where you got to really physicalize and vocalize the character, and um, the set, the the uh, Sarah Greenwood's 
designs were just they, they were so immersive um, and so detailed and then you're looking in the mirror and you're at least seeing a, an essence of a spirit of, mm. of, of, of wisdom so you are stepping in it, it was a little bit like just really touching history and stepping back you know you, when you, you step back in time Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of, so the whole, um, a great deal of that is doing the work for you. And we've come to the end of the year. One of the year's final Oscar releases, which premiered at the Toronto Film Festival, was Aaron Sorkin's directorial debut, Molly's Game. Though Aaron is very accomplished as a screenwriter, uh, you know, he won the Oscar for The Social Network, and he's nominated for writing again this year for this film. This was his first stab at directing. Uh, we talked about some of those insecurities going into the gig, but I think he managed just fine. The Directors Guild certainly agreed. He received one of the Guild's uh, debut director nominations this year. So here's Aaron talking about uh, saddling up as a director for the first time. You know, it's funny. Uh, I did a panel last night where someone asked that question. And as I told the, uh, the person who asked the question... Not only was that the first time I'd ever been asked that question, it was the first time I've ever thought about uh, uh, that question. Uh, right in that moment when I had to answer was the first time I ever thought about it. And the answer is absolutely yes. Yeah. Uh, I would have. I am so grateful that I didn't know uh, uh, that I was directing it when I was writing it because I would have been too scared uh, uh, to to write some of the scenes uh, uh, that I wrote. The whole opening sequence, the first eight minutes, has more action in it than every movie I've written combined. Uh, right? I like I write people talking in rooms. And it's uh, like, oh, mostly. the director will take care of this. It's exactly right. <laughs> the director's going to know how we do this ski crash. Yeah. Um, uh, the director's going to know how to you know do the getting beaten up scene. Um, uh, and the director's going to make these poker scenes look fantastic. Uh, you know, Fincher came along and made computer hacking look like a bank robbery. Uh, um, that's what directors do. They uh, they take this thing that I write, which doesn't have a whole lot of visual interest, and uh, and they give it visual interest. I write the lyrics; they write the music. You know, that <laughs> right. kind of thing. Um, so uh, so I am grateful that uh, that I didn't know uh, that I, it wouldn't have been as good a screenplay mm-hmm. uh, if I'd known that I was directing it. Um, so what was the biggest learning curve just before we get into Jessica and everything you know you never even I don't think directed like no, an no, episode no, of never, television no, or anything like uh, that I, I'd never directed anything before I, 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 I'm i not a complete production novice I've, I've been on the set every day of every movie uh, uh, that I've written uh, and as the showrunner in television you're involved in every aspect mm-hmm. of, uh, of production from prep to post and obviously I write the script too uh, uh, still, the biggest learning curve was going to be that in the 25 years I've been a professional writer, I'd managed to absorb none of the science of filmmaking uh, <laughs> at all. I couldn't pick a long lens out of a police lineup. <laughs> uh, enter Charlotta Christensen, uh, our cinematographer. Charlotta uh, uh, flew over from Denmark, where she lives, to meet with me. She had just gotten done shooting two movies. We talked about... Um, my vision for the look of the movie and two separate looks when we were in present day and when we were showing the story of Molly going from skier to uh, uh, to poker princess. Uh, uh, but I told her, uh, you know, listen, I'm, I'm just scared that uh, I don't have the vocabulary to... that you, that you need the director to have uh, for you to be able to do your job. Uh, and she said, no, don't worry about it at all. Here's what's going to happen. Uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about the scene. Um, uh, we're going to create a shot list uh, of everything that you want to get. And I'm, I'm going to be very opinionated. Uh, I'm going to tell you I also want to get this shot uh, and this shot. Uh, I'm never going to tell you, no, I'm not going to do your shot. But I'm, I'm going to add a couple of my own. <clears throat> but in terms of lenses and lighting, uh, I, I got this, have this handheld device, and I'm going to 
snap a, a, a lens on it and you're going to look through it and you're going to tell me if you like what you see. And if you do, I'm going to take the lens off the handheld device and put it on the camera. Um, uh, and that's how we do it. And um, there was a lot less for me to be scared of than, uh, than I thought. The truth of the matter is that for every area of film production, there is an expert uh, in that position. Mm-hmm. So... Um, it, Stand on their shoulders. Uh, It's exactly right. So that is by no means a complete snapshot of the Oscar season. There's a few films and talent we didn't get to this year. Movies like Call Me By Your Name and I, Tanya, The Phantom Thread and The Post. All of them competing for gold trophies this weekend. So check out the Oscars. It's on Sunday, March 4th. Tune in. Good luck to your favorites. And check us out every Thursday for more episodes of Playback. Got a lot of great guests coming up this year. Eva DuVernay, David Oyelowo, Jason Reitman. Going to be talking to Ethan Hawke. He's got a lot going on this year. So it's going to be a good slate. We'll be here every week. Hope you can make it. Once again, you've been listening to Playback, a variety iHeart Media podcast. <laughs>